Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Literacy Podcast. We are very excited to interview two fabulous guests today. We have Brent Conway and Jen Hogan, district leaders from Pentucket, and they are going to be phenomenal. I can just feel it. So yeah, I feel like they're old friends, <laughs> even though we just met them yesterday. They're, for so, the first they're, time, but... they're our social media buddies. <laughs> That's so right. Welcome, Brent and Jen. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes, uh, Brent Conway, I'm the assistant superintendent with uh, the Pentucket Regional School District, which is just uh, about 20 miles north of Boston. And I'm Jen Hogan. I am the ELA and Humanities Curriculum Coordinator for the elementary level in Pentucket, which is K-6. to My background is in an urban setting, though, so most of my career I've spent um, working as a reading specialist in an urban district, and this is my first year on board with Pentucket. I wear many hats, so instructional coach is also tucked into my my role title there, but uh, so excited to be here. Thank you for having us. That's great. We're so excited to talk to you all today. Um, We love talking to people about their journeys with uh, curriculum and instruction and where you all have been and where you are now. So I would love to start there of just, you know, where where has Pentucket been in the past and how did you get to where you are currently? Sure. This is my fourth year in the district uh, in the role of assistant superintendent. I was a principal at an elementary and then middle school for a long time in, in Melrose, Massachusetts, so not far uh, from here, um, and came here at the same time with the new superintendent. We both came at a time when the, the district really just didn't have a lot of curriculum in place, and uh, the, the schools were, were about 2,500 students, basically, in the district-wide uh, K-12. to And... Um, you know, the, dis- the district, the teachers were sort of used to a workshop model. They were used to using uh, guided reading and the, the, the F&P, BAS, and how you level students. And that's what they were used to. It was inconsistently done in building a building, and, and but that, that's what they were used to. And in coming here, uh, they were supposed to roll out a new literacy initiative. Um, and it, it was, you know, something that was akin to a, a guided reading, units of study type of uh, process. And my job walking in was to train them. And and we said, well, we're not going to train you in the units of study per se, but we're, we're going to train you in the components of literacy and, and all the things that go into learning literacy. Uh, so that's what we did. And we saw early on, they were really conflicted. Uh, how do you make all that work? How do you make it fit and, and do all those things? Uh, so we used data. Uh, we used data early on to talk about, um, you know, and, and I knew sort of early on, like, this is not the way it's going to work. I I had, as an elementary principal, going back to 2007, had put in more of a structured literacy approach, a tiered approach that used data um, and predictive data, right? Uh, And that's what they were used to putting all the level H's together and so forth. And that's how they group kids. And those kids read the level H books and so forth. And, um, you know, we started to have conversations about how that data really is not reliable. It's not predictive of outcomes. And we started with dialogue around, you know, well, what percentage of students at the end of the year are on or on, on or beyond grade level with, um, with that, that F&P, BAS, the levelled assessment. And like, oh, it's like 80%. I said, well, our state scores at third grade are only 50%. 
So there's a disconnect there. That, that, that doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. Uh, and then when we actually correlate out student by student, it actually only correlated at 20% of the time. So, and they're, well, what do you mean only 20%? I said, well, you spend hours and hours doing these assessments, and it's supposed to drive what you do for kids. It's supposed to be your instructional guide to tell you what to do, and it's wrong on four out of five kids. Brent, can I just clarify real quick there? So are you saying that you had some students who looked like they were on grade level based on the levels, um, the FMP levels, but maybe on the state test did not receive proficient and then maybe the opposite. <laughs> yeah, probably more probably the inflated uh, with the FNP and we were missing a lot of kids, right? So those kids mm-hmm. were not getting targeted instruction and all of that. On top of just grouping kids by level H, they're all level H and they all have very different literacy skills. And, and, and there wasn't a lot of targeted instruction. Um, the district was using foundations uh, as a sort of a tier one foundational skill component, kindergarten through second grade, which was good because they, they valued that. That's sort of that in the balanced literacy approach. Well, we, we do teach phonics over here, um, but it was taught in isolation. And I don't think they understood when we started talking about the five components that but you're undermining a lot of it when you go do the other stuff. You hand kids a level H or whatever it is, right? Um, so that's that's such yes. a good point. That's such yeah. a good point. Yeah, because you can have one component that quote you know meets the needs of structured literacy, but then I love the way you just said that you're undermining like several other component key components of literacy. Sorry no, I, I, you. <laughs> and from a foundational skill component, you do 30 minutes of all this great work at kindergarten and first grade and in second grade doing this. And then you go and hand them a book and they, they can't practice it or, or they actually start doing the strategies that poor readers do. You know, the things that Emily Hanford right. talks about and so forth. So then we, the same group of third graders, I took the Dibbles because they did the Dibbles assessment that year in third grade. And I correlated that to the MCAS, which is our, our state assessment. And I asked them, well, what do you think that correlates at? And, you know, at this point, they sort of know where the story is going a little. And, oh, that's like probably 50, 60%. And I said, no, it's 79%. And, and nationally, it's 80%. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a predictor. Well, that's just speed reading. I said, no, it's, it's not just speed reading. It is the predictor of those who are proficient readers. And then if they're not proficient in some category, we need to learn how to assess to the point of breakdown. So that, those are the systems mm-hmm. we started to put in place uh, using foundations. We added Hegarty, which was a great component for us and really boosted some of our performance of kids. But we use it very precisely, very specifically. Um, and then we started... After a year and a half, the pandemic hit. But at that, even before the pandemic, everyone's like, we need a curriculum. We can't do all this with what we have. I said, you're right. <laughs> so we went through a process of sort of going through that process to, to identify what would be a good match for us. We landed on wit and wisdom, and we're implementing that this year for the first time. Um, and it's going very well. And at the same time, we create, we didn't have any literacy coaches. So I was doing the coaching, uh, poor teachers. And um, <laughs> we needed a person to help coordinate that and support them with their literacy instruction, uh, particularly with the new curriculum. But even without that, we needed someone anyways. So we created the position of literacy coach and coordinator. And Jen, who was just a few, uh, few towns away, was really sort of the perfect candidate for us. And she joined our team. That's so exciting. Oh, I love this story. It's such a, such a good story. Um, Jen, would you, is there anything you want to add on to what Brent just shared and give you an opportunity to jump in? 
Thanks. With any thoughts? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I feel so lucky to just be on board. Um, and a lot of my background, like I said, I was in an urban district before where I think the demographic and the needs of the kids in many ways were very different. But I think we'll get into this a little bit later. But, you know, the needs of certain kids are also best for all kids, right? So good instruction is yeah. good instruction. And that's kind of where my background lies. So I've been doing a lot of work. Massachusetts, I have to give kudos to them. They're really trying at the state level to bring some of this into the schools and really promote high quality curriculum and, you know, research-based literacy instruction. So I had been doing all of that work, but I was working just within the capacity of one school. And so that can be really difficult to feel like you're having like a widespread effect of change. And so coming on board to Pentucket was a really good step for me. And I think it's funny because this is also my first year using a curriculum like this. And so I think many people. It's like I'm the wit and wisdom police or expert or something. And that's not how I came on board. Um, But it was a really authentic transition to be able to support the work. And I think it's been really impactful for the teachers. And it's, you know, me being in the schools day in and day out has made this more successful, I think. Um, And we can unpack some of that. But yeah, I was really happy to join the team. And it's been great so far. It's nice to be like a learner alongside of the teachers, right? Like we're in this together. Exactly. exactly yes. <laughs> that resonates so much with me and Melissa because we were the same we way. The, we, we, I remember sitting next to each other when we were implementing Win Wisdom, and mm-hmm. I'm like, "All right, we're, we have to learn this, you know? <laughs> Better learn fast, right?" My son yeah. was like immersed in Wit and Wisdom, just trying to learn as much as I possibly could, and then none of that even has much context. It's so different from doing it in practice, and then what I learned is so different from what the teacher learn in the classroom too. So mm-hmm. kind of balancing all of that in a way that can be supportive. Um, you know. Yeah. Some of the things we did yeah. early on too, even before Wit and Wisdom, we, we did some literacy planning. Um, and, you know, what we had a li- developing a literacy plan. The pandemic sort of interrupted some of that. We did more of it, but we worked <laughs> with Joan Sedita from Keys to Literacy, helped uh, do some of that work with us. Um, and then as Jen referenced, Massachusetts has really sort of shifted their work uh, at the Department of Education. And we were an early grades literacy grant recipient, which has given us, uh, this is year two of the professional development. Last year was foundational skills with a focus. And this year it's uh, the language strands, you know, of Scarborough's Rope. So Simple View and Scarborough's Rope really serve as the foundation of a lot of the, the discussions and work we do. So th- that's been very, very helpful. Um, but just as, as Jen said, like, and, and you referenced too, Implementing it and trying to figure out with wit and wisdom, and even though we had a lot of the structures in place, the the assessments in place, people starting to understand how to make some of those shifts, um, I guess I, I thought maybe we were a little further along in some spots, but still some of the struggles in implementing and and Jen and I have sort of come to this it's called the balanced literacy hangover right like it's this this lingering <laughs> effect of when people use a curriculum that's a knowledge building curriculum that is built on the, the aspect of not undermining right not doing those things but they still from a practice standpoint still remember and and rely on some of the practices they had always used um, that aren't necessarily supported by evidence and research. Um, and yet breaking away, and it's, it's hard for a lot of folks to do that. Um, you know, we, we use a, I use a Brene Brown quote a lot, right? People don't fear change. They fear becoming irrelevant. And if all they've ever known their whole life was those practices, it's, it's hard to change some of those um, because you, you're, you're fearful that what you're moving to will make everything else you knew irrelevant. And that's scary to people. So, yeah. yeah. 
It, there's, a, there's a lot of feelings that go along with <laughs> that change. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's very difficult. And I also have to call out that we are recording this on St. Patrick's Day. So I'm really happy that we're calling this the Balanced Literacy Hangover. Like we should just title the episode this and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> Although I will say, I don't know that you're in hangover phase still, maybe, maybe a little bit here and there, but it feels, it feels like you're on the other side. Like you've had some water in Advil and you're, you're coming out on top. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we kind of have that backstory to you, to your district now and, and know each of your roles in the implementation. Um, would you mind unpacking a little bit about the implementation and, um, you know, what happened, what happened after you chose your high quality materials and just a, a step into that for, you know, briefly for us. And then we'd love to hear more specifically from Jen uh, about what's happening in classrooms and schools and, you know, after we kind of frame the first steps into implementation? Yeah, so I came on board in the summer right around when the district had chosen Wit and Wisdom, and Brent had done some of the work last spring around professional development for teachers just based on the real basics, and I don't want to call it a theory, right, but the curriculum is structured quite differently than what teachers were used to, so he had done some professional development around that, kind of what to expect back in June for the upper grade teachers, and then we started talking over the summer about, all right, how are we going to get people on board? How are we going to start to roll this out? We knew there was a professional development structure that had to be in place. And so before school started, once we got the materials in, um, you guys have probably seen the pictures that we've tweeted of the crates on crates and pallets on pallets of thousands of books that were coming in. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but we are a regional school district and we do have three towns. And so we had to categorize all of those inventory, everything, do all the numbers, get it out to the schools. And once we did some of that, we brought teachers in for an optional PD session over the summer where the two of us walked through some things together and allowed teachers to really get their hands on the materials and start to look through. Because at that point, we had had a few teachers that had piloted the curriculum, but for the most part, this was brand new to most of our teachers. So they were able to really start digging into the materials, start to take a look at what they were going to be expecting. We shared some resources with them there. Uh, one of the first resources that I had created, I don't know, honestly, as much for myself as for the staff, but it was around the instructional routines that were embedded in the curriculum because Wit and Wisdom, I think, has over 40 different instructional routines that the teachers really need to know to be successful, right? And some of them I had heard of and others I didn't. So I'm thinking of like a tableau, which when you start doing research on a tableau is really just miming out a scene or acting out a scene. And so, you know, if I'm a teacher and I'm opening up this new curriculum and I'm really trying to understand it and I get to my students have to do a tableau and I don't know what that is. I have a classroom full of kids in front of me. I don't have time to figure out what that what that tableau is. So what am I going sure. to do? I'm probably going to skip it, right? Skip it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I would do. Yeah, exactly. Same, you know. And so yeah. over the summer, I was able to share some resources with them around that to really try to immerse them in the routines of the curriculum as well. And so that was really helpful. And then since then, we have, I've been in classrooms. I try to be in my buildings at least once a week supporting teachers. And it's, I think we've all learned so much even from, you know, over the summer, which feels like forever ago, but it really wasn't all that long ago. But I think listening to teachers, we've had teachers on all, 
you know, the whole span of people being really super excited about it and and then others that were really, really struggling for different reasons. And so I think the most important part of my job at this point has been to be really listening to the teachers and, and figuring out what is underneath some of that frustration, what is underneath some of those things that they're bringing to me and how can we unpack that and make it a little bit easier because it's really hard. Change is really hard. I think teaching right now is really hard. A lot of people are are feeling just an incredible amount of pressure of burnout. So, you know, I like to put on my how can I make their life easier hat. Um, and Brent and I have been using the phrase skillful implementation of the curriculum. I think at no point have we expected teachers to do it with fidelity. Um, I don't think I could teach it with fidelity right now. We know that we have a classroom full of kids in front of us with interrupted schooling over the past couple of years as well. And the level of need is just different than what it's been in the past. So we're expecting teachers to skillfully implement this based on what the kids need and where they're at, as opposed to doing it with fidelity. Um, and I think that's been really powerful too. But on the other hand, I, you know, I always tell the teachers, you have to know the rules before you break them. So I, I you know, everyone wants to know, what can I skip? What can I do? And I don't have the answers for that yet. I'm getting better, but um, we can't just start, you know, changing it all to, to meet our needs if, if we don't really know what we're looking at. And I think that was a huge hurdle to get over in the beginning of the school year for us, for sure. Yeah. I, That's definitely a huge hurdle. Huge. <laughs> With previous curricula, you know, it, it was, I guess, non-high quality curricula. You can kind of change and and that's the draw to it, right? Is that you can make it your own more so than maybe a high quality, uh, high, high quality one. And, and when, so your first intuition is to be like, what can I change? And Melissa and I did the same thing when we yeah, were looking we through it. we tell that story a lot. Because yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> That was our first instinct was like, this doesn't make sense. Let's change it. Yeah. <laughs> and, then we, and then we read the rest of it and we're like, oh, no, we can't change it. We because can't change it. <laughs> they need that. Or you yeah. you're cutting things out, you know, to save some time. And you realize a couple lessons later that that thing you cut is super important for right. students understanding or for this next piece of it. And so it is it's really challenging. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. that was such a great way for us to learn and see those you know, key literacy pieces in action. And I think that it was, it was challenging for me at least to understand what, you know, what exactly it looked like to have, um, fluency practice, what exactly like integrated within, right. As an example, until I saw it in, you know, within wit and wisdom. And it is that integrated piece of like all of the, you know, literacy elements, um, that, when I saw it in the curriculum, I just thought, oh, this is what I've been looking for. But I just didn't know that I was looking for it in this way. And it was such a great learning opportunity. So I, 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 we, that totally resonates with us, Jen, what you just shared. Yeah. And I think part of that, you know, another huge shift, it's not just what's in the curriculum, but it's how you're preparing for it as well. And so mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about how we're listening to teachers and really responding to what's going on in the classroom, and I want to preface this with, we've had a number of districts come visit Pentucket to watch teachers' instruction of Wit and Wisdom because I think there's such an interest right now, which is really great, you know, of districts and people wanting to adopt higher quality curricular materials. And so we've had people from Wit and Wisdom come, we've had other districts come visit. And I have to give kudos to our teachers because consistently they are blown away and can't believe it's the first year that our teachers are 
are doing this. And so mm-hmm. they've just been doing really incredible, tremendous work, um, really working hard to put this in place for our kids. But then we're listening to what's going on in the classroom, where are people feeling frustrated and we were supposed to do a writing PD because I think that was a piece of the frustration as well. And we were supposed to bring wit and wisdom in in February to do this PD on writing. And after working with teams of teachers, I realized how they were preparing and planning for this. I guess we could call it part of the balanced literacy hangover. But when you are using teacher created units or units of study, or you're teaching a mini lesson, that's vastly different than teaching a whole group or, or, or tier one, you know, wit and wisdom says 90 minutes, but let's even call it 60 minute lesson to all your kids and scaffolding it to meet the needs of all your kids. That's very different. And your sense of ownership is really quite different when you're opening up a curriculum and you're trying to teach it. So many teachers were trying to teach it from the front. So we're opening it up and we're kind of working our way through lessons and through a lesson scope and sequence. And so, I was thinking about, you know, the idea of backwards design and UBD and how we really need to start to embrace and internalize that process so that we can look at this curriculum and start making those intentional decisions. We can start learning about how do we look at the learning goals and the standards and the assessment, and that can drive what we're going to, I guess we could say, cut out. But what are we going to shift or change or modify so that we can still meet the learning goals and the standards and the goals of the assessment without, you know, undermining the rest of the curriculum or doing something so wildly different that there's a different outcome. And so we shifted that professional development opportunity. And I worked with our K to six teachers and paraprofessionals and special educators so that we could really start that process. Um, And that's been really successful for us. And I think that was an aha moment for a lot of our teachers was just the way that we can plan for this. You know, it may take a little more time up front, but in the end, it makes our life so much easier when we have that full understanding of what students are expected to do in the end. It's I this quote, I just looked it up because I <laughs> it was just stuck with me when you guys were talking. Um, it's attributed to Picasso, so it may or may not come from him, but it says, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like ah. an artist. And it reminds me of that. I love that. <laughs> I'm gonna start using that. Might not actually that. be Picasso though, so just be careful. You <laughs> didn't fact check three times on Google. It just says Picasso <laughs> is attributed with saying it. <laughs> but it really is true, right? That I mean you have to know what the goals are and what the outcomes need to be so that you know what, what might need to shift. I think Lori and I did our very first podcast about just this, like what, what does fidelity mean and where can you break the rules and how, how can you? Yeah. We, we use that phrase, skillful implementation that Jen said, it's actually the title of our teaching and learning blog, which, which isn't just about mm-hmm. wit and wisdom. It's about other things, um, as other things in the district too, for teaching and learning, but, um, you know, skillful implementation is about acknowledging that, you know, it's not a script um, that you have in front of you. You have students in front of you. Uh, the curriculum is your guide. Um, understand that curriculum at a deep level so you know what the intention is, right? So you don't undermine it. You don't cut things out. They're important. But the skillful part comes in use data. Like, you know, your data helps you to know when to zig or when to zag, right? Um, 
you know the students in front of you. Um, you know, uh, there, there's so many elements and it values the teacher knowledge and expertise and ability to sort of know the kids in front of them. And and we, we put emphasis on that. We have data meetings uh, three times a year where we sit down, review our data, and we talk about who are the students in need, targeted work. Uh, we talk about where in tier one we can sort of leverage some things and then where within you know, additional support, we can, we can leverage some things and we become pretty precise with that. Um, but that, you know, it, it, the skillful implementation of high quality curriculum is really sort of the, the mantra a little bit. You know, you're making me think of Brent. We interviewed uh, Faith Borkowski and at the end I had asked her a question and she was like, I think you're misunderstanding. Uh, I didn't ask her a question. I had asked her uh, if I was understanding her correctly. And I, I repeated back to her what she said. And she's like, I think you're misunderstanding. And that helped me create a new visual in my mind. And so when you're talking right about this skillful implementation of high quality curricula, I think about it very much like that moment that faith really helped me create this new visual. And I imagine it like this, that the curriculum is is set up top like like a timeline bar, right? So it's a, it's across the top. And it is where where we're going and the students are underneath and they're all, you know, input at these at this spot, right? Say fourth grade. But then where they are input along the way might shift or change uh, depending on what they need. But the curriculum doesn't actually change, right? The standards, the curriculum, everything still stays up top on that high bar. It's the students who we're bringing in. And I think often in education, we do it the opposite direction. We put the students at the very top and then we change what's underneath. And that's why we never hit that high bar. Not never. Uh, That's why sometimes we miss that high bar. Um, And especially at a time like this where students have so many needs, you know, I, I, I just imagine that being, I know teachers are working so hard and I imagine that being like a huge thing that they're carrying with them. And the teachers have been amazing in doing this work. I, I just blown away and, and, you know, they, so you get in the weeds and you don't realize like how far ahead you are. And and as Jen said, we've had people come in and go, wait, this is the first year uh, and they can't, you know, and then you tell the teachers this and they, you know, they're very proud and, and excited, you know, because they're just in the middle of it every day. Um, and some of the PD Jen did in February, we switched to that, you know, like let's address the planning and you, you know, the, the whole idea of, oh gosh, we wish we knew this at the beginning of the year. And we're kind of like, you kind of did, it just didn't have any context to you. So we just have to get back to it. Right. Um, like I was saying from the get go, this is not a script. It's not a script. You can't walk in and pick it up and go turn the page and go, okay, day seven and start reading through. It'll take you four hours to do it. Um, you know, and it won't be very good or effective and you'll skip the things you don't know, you know, like all those things. You have to plan over the arc and of where the outcome is. Mm-hmm. But in the moment in August, as you're preparing to go back to school, that that just doesn't have context. And then they go through a whole module, they sort of get and then they realize and then Jen draws those connections to them and it all starts to make sense, right? Um, for, for most of the folks, they start to begin to realize um, how this curriculum is really different. Um, but but you're right, Laurie, about when you say, you know, oftentimes we want to think of a student-centered curriculum. So when we say that, oftentimes, oh, we think of our students first and then we make the curriculum fit them. But if you have a high-quality instructional materials or program or curriculum – that's already designed to make the vast to meet the needs of the vast majority of students. So you have to hold that up top 
And then you use your data and your skillful understanding, right, to then make the adjustments as you need to make the students the center. Um, and that's that's sort of the difference um, that that we see. And and it's just been really impressive to see and and you know to for to have sort of a team. And we have great principals too, and they're they're involved, but. You know, to be able to have someone like Jen and then someone like myself who, you know, we have different sort of skill sets, right? Um, and uh, but to be able to work together on this has been it's been really pretty cool to see. So, Sure. <clears throat> I wanted to back up just a little bit, not really backing up. It's just connecting to something you all said earlier, because it really resonated with me about listening to the teachers I know I had a moment when we were just starting to implement in Baltimore and, you know, there were, there were some of the squeaky wheels that they, they, they were not happy <laughs> with the change, the teachers. And I remember some administrators who were just like, just, just tell them just, they just have to do it. Like, just tell them to like, stop complaining or we, we don't want to listen to them complain. Just like, let them do it. And I, it broke my heart. And it, it what you all said was, the reason why, right, is like there's something under that <laughs> complaint. It's not like teachers totally. are just coming to complain every day. Our teachers are working hard. They're here for our students. There's something there that they need <laughs> that 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 if you want what a complaint or struggle is coming from. I'm wondering, it's kind of where you guys were going anyway, but like what what kinds of things are coming up the most? I know that we we hear a lot about that disconnect of like we have students who are reading a couple grade levels below, maybe even more now because of the pandemic. But we have these really hard texts. <laughs> like, what do we do? I don't know if that has come up for you all or if other things have come up. Um, just wondering, like, what what kinds of things yeah. do you, I mean, we, Jen, have to handle every yeah, day? I mean, <laughs> certainly some things have come up. I think fortunately, you know, for us, we were doing a pretty good job of the foundational skill stuff in the years prior. And even during the pandemic, when we had hybrid school, this and that, like our kids did pretty well and our outcomes were really, they weren't that much of a dip at all um, because they were, the teachers were doing good work. Um, nonetheless, that all of those issues still exist, right? The texts are challenging. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we try to remind them the purpose of grade level text, all of those types of things. But at the end of the day, there's still, an instructional component, um, you know, first implementing, it takes a long time to do like that, you know, some people are really, but that gets better. That absolutely gets better. And it gets better fairly quickly. And the quickest for those who begin to plan the way that Jen sort of talked about and helping with them, that's the biggest stuff. And then Jen has done some really precise work with teachers around like the actual instruction, you know, particularly around how do you read complex texts? And Jen and I were so fortunate to be with Dr. Tim Shanahan in the fall and we're, we're sitting there listening to him and it's like one bell after another going off, off in our heads. And we're like elbowing each other. Like, that's it. No, that's it. No, no, this is it. And it's just <laughs> everything coming together. I'm like, that's, that's this great. is, we have to get all of this back to our folks to, to, to see and hear this. Um, so I don't know, Jen, if you want to build on that a little bit. Um, yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit because as a reading specialist background, I can definitely empathize with teachers who are, who are looking at these texts that, you know, first, second, third graders are expected to read. And I like to think of Scarborough's Rope when we're thinking about this because there are different barriers to access 
to the text, right? And so I think what most teachers are saying when they're coming to us and saying, you know, the, the books are way too hard, um, my kids can't do this. I think what most people are implying is that my kids can't actually decode the words that are on the page. They can't decode these, especially in the younger grades, but even in the upper grades, um, they're just, these texts are complex, right? And the kids deserve access though, no matter what their ability to decode is, all kids need and deserve access to these grade level rich academic texts. And so what do I do about that as a teacher though? Like you said, we have all these different entrance points and teachers are working so hard with all of these kids in front of them. So how do I realistically do this? And like Brent said, I think the first thing to take a look at is what what are you doing for foundational skills? So what are you doing to close the gaps for those kids that can't decode or can't decode on grade level? And so are we teaching kids to decode in a way that matches the research so that we can close those gaps and allow them to really tackle those words that are within the text? So that may be a whole different podcast entirely, but I think that's the first thing we have to take a look at. Um, but then there are other things that are built into the curriculum that can address some of those decoding issues or that are preventing kids from accessing, like we can give the kids text in smaller pieces. So Laurie, you had mentioned fluency before. Uh, many curriculums include a fluency component, but what that is, is really just the core text in a much smaller chunk that is much more accessible to kids that they can then engage with repeated reading. And we can be really explicit in the way we're teaching this. And for our kids that really struggle, that's really powerful for them when they get to that core text, then they open the page and it's something that they've already seen and read and practiced yeah. with before. Um, how powerful is that? And we don't, you know, those kids don't have enough opportunities to really see that and thrive and be successful. So even with kids that really struggle, you know, with their decoding, we can do things within the curriculum to really, to really bulk that up, I think. Um, and of course there's audiobooks, which I do think, at times, there's an over-reliance perhaps on audiobooks and, and read-alouds as the main vehicle for access, which I just want to be, you know, cautious about. And they're, you know, they're definitely appropriate for some kids, but we want to be teaching kids how to access this on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and to do this, they really need time in the text themselves. And so I think that has really been the underlying piece. But um, Brent said too, you know, when we think of the rope and we think of other barriers to access, we have that whole other language strand um, that can really be preventing kids from comprehending. So I have these kids that can decode most of the words, but they still really don't understand what we're reading at all. And this goes beyond kind of that drill and kill of the main idea, right? Or, or the inferencing and, and practicing inferencing over and over again. But this really involves the language of these texts, the really rich vocabulary, the syntactical structure of what they're looking at. Most of us aren't exposed to that in our in our day-to-day -day lives, in our oral language. And so we're relying on the text to give them that academic content and that academic structure. But how are we going to break this down? And like Brent said, that day with Dr. Shanahan was really a light bulb moment for us as we you know, like you said, we're learning too. And so we're learning how to unpack this and make this accessible for kids and how to start removing those barriers for kids so that they can do this independently or more proficiently, you know? Yeah. The, the, the like the syntactic stuff, um, the syntactic knowledge and understanding how teachers can scaffold that for kids to understand it. I, I think in particular, that's a great to the Johnny Appleseed book, right? Um, there's a sentence in there that's a really a critical, critical sentence in understanding it. And uh, Jen's going to know the actual words, um, but it uses the word for, F-O-R, 
which clearly is not a word that students are going to struggle to decode in second grade. Most would be fine. Um, but what's that sentence, Jen? Do you remember? It's something along the lines of Johnny Appleseed wanted people to stop fighting, comma, for he believed that all men are brothers. And so it's that for as a conjunction. As you said, it's it's like a, a special way of saying because. <laughs> and yet, like that word for to- totally throws kids off from understanding that sentence. And it's a key sentence in understanding the text. So there's an example of planning from the text, right? So if the teachers know the text and can, oh, that's that's sort of an archaic use of the word for, the kids will get tripped up on that. I want to teach that before they really encounter it or when we encounter it so that everyone understands and that that's not the barrier to kids understanding the text. And that goes to like um, uh, Meredith Lieben and Sue Pimentel uh, talk about a lot and that like planning from the text and you know, the reality is, and this is, goes to, to Tim Shanahan as well, like, if you want kids to learn how to read complex text, you have to use complex text. <laughs> you can't do it with simple text. You can't use a lower level text. And I think when teachers begin to see that and they realize, like, yeah, if I'm using lower levels, the kids never get the opportunity to see that type of thing and get that precise instruction. And that is a transferable understanding when you see words like that, whereas practicing the main idea of all of a sudden it's a brand new topic that's really not a transferable thing. And and then you go back to the rope, right? So you get syntactic knowledge, background knowledge, and you have, you know, the, the more knowledge students have and, and the more like volume of information and in reading, maybe not even about the cortex, but just about related information it has such a greater impact on their ability to understand the core text. And, and Wit and Wisdom actually calls their the volume of reading. That's literally what their extra, the, <laughs> the other component is called. And that's so critical. So reshaping your classroom libraries, right, in, in the topics that are related, it's all so important to that. And we use the geodes. That's another tool we use, too, um, to match the foundations patterns. And those have the same topics. So for the kids who are still working on some of the decoding skills, you're doing so with some of the, again, the, the knowledge that's around the core topic. It just gives them greater access. Yeah, I, you're making me think about those level H books we were talking about earlier. Purple lampposts. Because <laughs> it's a level H, yeah, purple lampposts. It's the same thing. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, we don't find um, those complex sentences or vocabulary opportunities in those kinds of books. And um, it's making me think about your story, Jen. It's making me think about how uh, when my daughter was working through third grade wit and wisdom during the pandemic, she was reading a small section of Amos and Boris and, at, for fluency, um, which is, you know, part of the curriculum. And she, I think the word was luminous. There might've been some, other, I think like bioluminescent might be in there. And I remember her saying these words and she's like, oh, I never noticed them before. What do they mean? And then, you know, we were talking about what they meant and she she looked at me and she goes, I just love the way that sounds when I say it out loud. And it feels in my mouth like luminous and bioluminous. And I was cracking up. I'm like, yeah, that's the fun of words, right? And you don't get that with a level H no, text. No, and you, that bioluminescence <laughs> word. And, and we, so our kids did that this year for the first time. And we had an entire school of third graders after finishing 
you know, the Jacques Cousteau book and this and that, they had asked for microscopes for Christmas. The entire, like, it must have been a run on microscopes. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> um, Amazon deliveries coming. And they're like, what's yes, going yes, on? And they're in so Pentucket. inspired by the opportunity. To, and it's, and it's not because they read a single high quality text. It's because they were immersed in right. the knowledge and, and they just wanted more. They wanted yeah. to learn more. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that uh, the other book in that module, Shark Attack, uh, press was so pumped about like the whole, I mean, the whole module in general, third grade, that just, that module is fantastical in terms of content and knowledge. But uh, she w- asked for, for Christmas, like, can I have more books about like learning about things like that? So I found her, um, oh gosh, what is it? Like the, tr- the, the true story books where it was like shark attack. And she, you know, she's like reading all these, these true stories about all these different things about the ocean. I mean, she wanted to read about the Titanic and <laughs> things that were very related, like right building knowledge. And I think that that is such a real life example. And and what you just shared about the kids asking for, <laughs> you know, that, that it impacts kids' lives. And I just think that that is what makes this so special. And you're seeing it happen in such a short time, right? Like this is your first yeah. year. That's I, so cool. The, the writing too. <laughs> I, this is the part that actually was maybe my biggest hurdle just as, as some, because I was trained in work in a workshop model. I'm not sure I fully understood that there was a, another way. I started to understand even before Wit and Wisdom that, no, there, there, there's a more structured way. We've seen things like framing your thoughts as a structured way of teaching writing. Um, and But I think for a lot of folks who only knew the workshop model, most could conceptualize as a different way than Reader's Workshop or Balanced Literacy to Teach Reading. They started to understand that, right? The writing was another hurdle. And we had folks who, who struggled to, my kids, they're not writing. They're not writing. I'm like, no, no, they, they are writing. Look, it's at the sentence level, right? And it's building and building and building. And then there's that end of module on demand task that puts it all together. But that's in reverse of what they were used to doing. They were okay, we're going to start with this two paragraph essay as a first grader. And, and then they're going to meet <laughs> in conference for like two months on it. And they're going to make revisions. And the revisions are either exactly what the teacher told them to do or none right. of it at all because the kids didn't understand anything the teacher told them to do. Um, and then at the end, you get two types of paragraph. You get two types of written components two months later. Some of them are great, but I don't know that the students really know how to do it. Um, and then some of them, are, it, there's, they're trying to do so many things all at once rather than focusing on individual components as they go. And then when you see the wit and wisdom build and build and build and the writing all related to the text and then the outcomes, um, that took me a little while. But then when I saw the outcomes after module one and now module two, it's like, oh, yeah, that is how you teach writing. You know, yeah. it's funny sometimes we see people say, like, there's no writing in wit and wisdom. We need a writing program. And I'm, <laughs> I always like, I'm always like, Lori, that's the balance writing. <laughs> what am I missing? Hangover, right? Like, we're so used to it being a particular way. And, and you have to step out. What is, and then really, as we're doing, it's like, well, what does the research say about how you learn to write? And it really speaks to the way wit and wisdom embeds the writing. It doesn't say it's writing instruction, you know, it says craft and so forth. Right. And I think that's where people are like, well, it's not writing. It's not writing. No, there's writing. It's you're, you're just teaching it at, at individual components and they build on it. 
Yeah. Speaking of that hangover, because I mean, I, you know, I used to do it. I taught in that <laughs> landscape too, that time you'd say, okay, now it's time for writing. Now yeah. it's time for reading. And yeah. with an integrated high quality curriculum, you don't do that. It's all there and you're doing it little at a time. And you're, you're using the knowledge that you're getting from reading to write. You, and you can't write about something so you don't sense. know anything about. And that's where if you're no. reading this volume and they're pulling <laughs> from multiple texts and synthesizing information, and then you read these at the end of a module, it's like, oh my gosh, look at this outcome. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do, Brent? I, um, and we have a newsletter that we publish on Tuesdays after. So podcasts come out on Fridays and then we publish a newsletter on Tuesdays. I have Presley's end of module task for this module that she wrote and I will, we'll post a picture and I'll, I'll share it in, um, as an, just as an example, you know, of what students are doing, Jen, if you have any, you know, student samples that you'd like to send our way, we're happy to publish those as well. I just think we'll just have to look at her. Yeah, Twitter. she tweets all the right. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do fill that up. Okay, well, well, we can pull from there too. But it is, I think, like you know, people are hearing us talk about it right now, but seeing it and seeing the the very complicated sentences that students are writing, the vocabulary that they're using, it's going to bring it to light, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, I think so too. I do. I try to take pictures of all of that when I see it, because again, when you're a classroom teacher and you're trying to pull this out of 20, 20 something kids, it can feel like, oh my gosh, like it just took us, you know, (laughs) this was so challenging for some kids and all of this. And then, you know, I come in cold and I look at the writing and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe these second graders were writing about oxen in a corral, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, I try to grab that when I can and put it out there because I think it's really important for our teachers to see it as well. Because, you know, the kids are really doing some tremendous work around writing, especially. Yeah, it's that's always exciting to see student writing. <laughs> it's just made me think of, too, something else that we've run into in the first year that we've been saying since the beginning, but I think has been had a lot more context now. And talking about background knowledge and the writing and all of that made me think of it is that reminder, though, that curricula like this that are built like this and centered around knowledge building, we have to be careful though, and that they're not a science or social studies curriculum. And so, you know, that idea of, I want to teach every single piece and make sure kids have, I think bioluminescent was, it's the example we always use. So it's so funny that you brought that up, Laurie, but, (laughs) you know, think about, think about a third grade teacher in their first, really it's the first months, maybe the first week of wit and wisdom when bioluminescent pops up in that very first mm-hmm. text of module one. And they're going, oh my goodness, you know, we have all of these kids in front. How am I supposed to teach these third graders about bioluminescent? Like what a complex vocabulary word for these kids. And, and I think that's a shift in and of itself, but also that's okay if not all of your kids walk away with mastery of the word bioluminescent, right? That's that's a really high level, you know, tier three vocabulary word that is not necessarily essential for their understanding. You know, will kids be able to write without knowing what bioluminescent is? Of course. And so that reminder of we're thinking of literacy first and literacy standards first, and that science and social studies knowledge is kind of holding that up because it's allowing them to access the text and then produce writing with it. But we don't need kids to be mastering these science and social studies concept to a level that we'd expect in science or social studies based on Mm -hmm. the grade level standards. We just need kids to know enough that they can engage in conversation, they can use vocabulary, they can produce grade level writing. And so I think that's an important thing that we've been kind of kind of been one of my mantras, I guess, if you will, that I remind teachers of, because it is hard to get, 
I mean, it's easy to get lost in like the artwork and all of a sudden a 15 minute, you know, little piece of art that's built into a lesson takes 45 minutes and your, your day is, is gone. And you're like, what did we actually do today? We looked at art, you know, and so it's not an art curriculum either. And the art really contributes to that knowledge and makes it incredibly well-rounded and responsive, but it's, it's not an art curriculum either. So really literacy and students first, and then all of that kind of comes as a support. That's a really good point. I know I, just recently heard someone ask, like, are there, is there a correlation in with science standards or social studies standards with wit and wisdom? And someone's like, no, like, we expect you to still be teaching science and social studies. Time in the day is tough, curriculum. right? Um, but, but it is <laughs> it true. Is. We, we, we said that earlier on. It's not a science social studies curriculum, but we have the point, like, can we move some of the modules to match this? No, 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 no. <laughs> this is carefully designed. So, well, what? And, well, here, here's, you got to remember, it's background knowledge. So if you're yeah. teaching a science topic in fourth grade, it's possible the kids in third or second encountered some of the background knowledge through wit and wisdom. And then vice versa, you might be right. covering some knowledge in fourth grade through literacy and through wit and wisdom that they'll encounter in their social studies or science in fifth or sixth grade. And they'll draw upon that. And that's the, the thing about background knowledge is that it it's transferable in the sense that it comes with you. You know, it just builds that with you. It's, it's not, um, you know, I, so we do work with, with our seven through 12 up here where we, we don't use wit and wisdom, but we're teaching them all teachers in all content areas, how to teach complex text because the value of the background knowledge and those literacy skills with, you know, a 10th grade U S history to text is, is really valuable. So, I think the best example of that that I can think of from Wit and Wisdom that's been nice for me to see all the grade levels and then draw that connection for teachers is module three of grade four, which is the American Revolution. And when you look at the social studies standards for grade three, the kids have some exposure to that. And then in grade five, they really dive into American history and learn about the American Revolution. So while they're not doing that in grade four, it is nice to be able to talk with those grade level teachers in grades three, four, and five and say, you know, I met with a grade five team recently and they didn't know that fourth grade was doing the American Revolution and Wit and Wisdom, right? Because we can barely think about what is module four in our own grade in Wit and Wisdom. And, and I honestly don't know either. <laughs> um, but, you know, imagine the knowledge that your kids are going to come in with now about the American right. Revolution. And then imagine how much more content you can get through and how much deeper you can go now in fifth grade social studies because the kids have had just this whole time period of background knowledge that they didn't have before. And so I think that's really powerful too. And that's why I enjoy being in multiple grade levels and really seeing it and being able to draw these connections because otherwise, you know, it, it just, it is, you know, in fourth grade, I want to move these things around and make it all match, but that's not really the purpose in the end. Yeah. yeah. I always think about, because that is a question that, you know, we get asked frequently and just in general, I think people ask is like, can we move things around? And I, I had, I just hesitate so much because in, in real life, like think about real life. It's not like you're going to learn everything about one thing all in like a three month period of your life. It is an ongoing grabbing of knowledge, learning, like you might reevaluate what you thought two months from now and then go back and realize you need to, you know, learn some more about something in order to continue forward with whatever knowledge you needed to reevaluate. And 
I just think we're, we're almost doing kids a disservice by making them think that like, you're going to learn everything about the American revolution and, you know, in, um, fourth grade in between March and May. And then when you, you know, when you go on to fifth grade, then you're going to learn about this and that that's just not how life works. And I, I, I struggle with that a lot because I, I don't, I, I just think it's so well-intentioned that it's, it's, it's never coming from a place of, of like hurt. It's always coming from a place yeah. of help. And well, yeah. we talk so much about alignment in in yeah. education that it feel it feels yeah. really good when you're aligned, right? If everything is happening at the same time. But it reminds me of um I think of Natalie Wexler when she was on our podcast now years ago. Um and she talks she talks about it like the velcro balls. Knowledge is like these velcro balls that stick to each other and I always think I'm like, well, if you just get them all at one time, like there's nothing to keep sticking to, right? You don't you don't have anything for the, the for, or you don't have any more balls coming in to 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 stick to the the old one. Um, so, so that's what you were saying, Laurie. Just I just brought yeah. in a, the, a metaphor. The conceptual for you. <laughs> understanding of things, right? You're, you're building on vocabulary. You're building on the the concept and the idea and the understanding. Right. And, and as you get new information when you're older, it has new context to you. And it, yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, because you have more knowledge and experience, it's right? True. So it's true. <laughs> I, I remember my in third grade where I went to school. I had a third grade teacher, Miss Sullivan. She was amazing. And we did a gold rush unit and it was probably good two, two and a half months long. Um, and she, you, it was an immersive, it was all, you know, we did a research report on it. We were reading books about it. It reminds me so much of what, how wit and wisdom sort of functions. Right. Um, and do I remember like precise things about the gold rush as far as information? No, I do remember conceptually what it meant during like westward expansion and all of that. Mm -hmm. And now as an adult, like I learned the skill of outlining. I can tell you that. Like that was a skill I learned that I still (laughs) use now. And Jen's like, yeah, when we see your agendas, it looks like a third grade report. I know, right? (laughs) But You'll have to send a copy to Miss Sullivan. Conceptually, um, the idea that all that knowledge like stays with me, again, certain facts aren't there. But when you hear things now and you understand things, even as an adult, you're building off of some of your background knowledge of what you knew you learned then. Um, And I have such a distinct memory of that, of how impactful that type of learning experience was. So. And that's a long time ago for third grade for me. So (laughs) we won't make you say which year. (laughs) Definitely not. Well, I hate to do this because I feel like we could just keep chatting forever, but <laughs> we are nearing the end of our time. And so we want to offer you all the chance to leave one last piece of advice for our listeners, or just if there's something else that you just really wanted to share, feel free to to get it out now before we wrap up. I think my biggest piece of advice, and we've touched on this before, but just really as a leader in this process and as a teacher on a team, you really have to be open to listening and digging into this. And as a teacher, you have to be listening to the kids, right? So when the kids are saying this is too hard, when the kids are feeling frustrated, when the kids are engaging with the knowledge, what are they really saying? And then as a leader, listening to your teachers and trying to figure out how you can support them best by really listening to 
the heart and the core of where they're feeling frustrated or where they're feeling burnt out or where they can be best supported. And I think that that is one of the ways that you can be successful in this and really create a shared ownership as a team between your students and your staff and your leaders and really get everybody on board going in the same direction. But you have to be open to listening to what people are saying and to what people need in order to really get that done. Yeah. I would just add, I think one of the, the vet, if you're switching from, you know, one of the readers workshop or, or balanced literacy curriculum, you're moving towards a high quality instructional curriculum around literacy, you need a plan um, because you, you can't take your old practices with you and use them with the new setup. It's, it, it will frustrate uh, teachers immensely. Um, so take a little bit of time, plan some of that out uh, as, as a leader and administrator and, and really purposefully get to the why the, this is different. And, and then once you go through the why and you build on the why, you can attach that to the how. So this is why we do things. This, this is why it's different because it matches the research. And this is how these are the practices you do to match that. And, the, and you got to revisit it, right? Every time we thought we had something that it was like, no, we got to come back with, with a new context, a new lens. And it, you, it'll mean more for people the more you go on. This is not a two-day PD to start the year and hand the books and say, go get them, everyone, you know, um, <laughs> because we're already, we, we plan for PD next August, right? So to, for the next round, to just sort of keep people building and building and building um, and have a core group of folks that are your, your team who understand the why and the how, who they can help people move along and do just what Jen was doing, have more people able to listen. But thank you so much. This was great. I love talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was great to hear from you all. We're so excited to hear about the amazing work all your teachers are doing and that you all are doing to support them. And thank you for your time to share with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for your time. And we will link your blog as well, because we want to elevate that. And that's a great place where listeners can go to, to find, you know, updated and information about what's happening in Pentucket, right? You're going to keep yeah. adding to that? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you both so much for Thank being you. here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us.